It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Rick Braun, who will be performing along with Richard Elliott in the Chrome Showroom at the Santa Fe Station Hotel this Saturday, November 13th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to santafestation.com. And for everything about Rick Braun, including his new album, Crossroads, go to rickbraun.com. And you can follow him on Facebook at Rick Braun and on Twitter at Rick Braun 9 And Rick, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Ira. Nice to be here. Thank you, Rick. Why did you get Rick Braun 9? Was the Rick Braun by itself taken up on Twitter? I think I actually have 9 and 10, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I figured that's as high as I could go and, and get lucky. So. <laughs> well, since you're coming to Las Vegas, it really should be Rick Braun 7 or 11. Exactly. Exactly. I'll, you know what? It may not be too late. I'll try and go back and get that one on Twitter. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> now, I know, you've, I know you've answered this question millions of times, but I think for our listeners, you just have to talk about how you found your brother's trumpet in the closet and then the rest was legacy. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was eight years old and, um, you know, back, back in those dark ages and prehistoric era, era when I was eight years old, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was, they, they, they allowed us to all pick an instrument at that age. It's time to play an instrument. You're eight years old and the school had instruments and they had a couple of smelly clarinets and, you know, <laughs> other odds and ends in their closet. But I came home. Yeah. I came home and, uh, <clears throat> the clarinet kind of scared me. It had too many keys and this and that. And, you know, I, I remembered that my brother had played trumpet, my older brother, Ronnie, and uh, he gave it up because he went on to high school football, had a concussion, and his career as a football player ended shortly. But I found his trumpet in the closet, and I picked it up, and I opened, I opened the case, put the mouthpiece in, and without any coaching whatsoever, I was able to uh, get a sound out of it. And I sat there and just started kind of, playing it a little bit. It was pretty horrible, but I, I was able to get a sound. And anybody who has experienced picking up a trumpet, it's not all that easy to get a sound out of it. It's it, Not everybody can do that. So I loved it from the moment that I started playing. I loved the sound of it, the smell of it. I loved you know everything about the trumpet and took it into school. And I said, I got my instrument. This is what I want to play. And so I guess you could say I'm a closet trumpet player. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first trumpet that came out of the closet. So there you go. Correct. And I did it right away. I didn't even hold back. I was very brave about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I keep having these uh, fantasies, negative ones of finding a flugelhorn in my closet, but nothing's there. It's just well, closed. Well, as long as it's not a trombone, that's the real, that's the real terrifying <laughs> How soon after did you actually learn the flugelhorn? Because that's a whole other instrument. It's a great sound, but that it's not the same as a trumpet, clearly. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a flugelhorn until I went to college. And I, I remember I wanted a flugelhorn so badly. And I went in, I, interestingly, I went to the Eastman School of Music where Chuck Mangione had uh, been a professor and you know he left the school right before i got there but i knew that chuck was there and 
Flugelhorn. I loved his his music and Land of Make Believe. It was a great record of his, and of course, Feel So Good. And so, you know, I I got a flugelhorn when I went to college, and and not really before. And um, you know, I've always loved the sound of it. It is a great sound. It's a it's a warm sound, and and uh, you know, of course, Freddie Hubbard and Clark Terry. Clark Terry played almost exclusively, you know, flugelhorn. But it's a beautiful sound, and and once I got a flugelhorn in my hands, it just it was uh, a natural for me to to play that instrument. I loved it. Some people may not know, but you actually played professionally starting in the sixth grade. Well, I mean, it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't a lot of money, Rick, let's face it, but still. No, I think we had like 18 rehearsals and one show at the Allentown Women's Club. And, uh, you know, I, I think I made a grand total of $50 for all of that. And um, But it was with the New Park Conservatory Accordion Academy Band. And uh, that was an interesting it was almost like two, three trumpets versus 20 accordions, if you can imagine that sound. And so that was, that was my first professional gig. And, um, you know, coming from Allentown, Pennsylvania, it's, it's not that, not that unbelievable. (laughs) 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 I followed that up by joining in high school, Vince Petinelli's polka band. And we played our, our big show in Alpha, New Jersey, right across the bridge. I love polka music. I'm, I, I admit yeah. it publicly, but I probably will be condemned for it. But that's okay. Well, I'm I'm not going to hold I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire on that. That's thank okay. you. I do love jazz, but I also love polka and other forms of music. So I'm I'm somewhat variable here. The well, uh, yeah, <laughs> the Eastman School of Music. Here comes a terrible joke question. Did they also develop film on the premises? Well, you know, it, there was there was an opportunity for for lots of exposure. <laughs> I'll grade that a plus X. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. No, it was. <laughs> no, it was it was strictly music, and uh, you know, it was it was a very you know it was a very intense learning learning environment, and a lot of really fine musicians came out of Eastman. One of the most notorious was Mitch Miller, who was way back in the day. My mother was a fan of Mitch Miller, who had this famous, famous TV sing-along show. But he was actually thrown out of the Eastman School of Music because he was a prankster. <laughs> he, was a, he was an oboe player. And one time he crawled up above the Eastman Theater, which is this very beautiful Art Deco theater. And during a very quiet passage, he dropped ping pong balls on the timpani. <laughs> <laughs> And somebody didn't think that was funny. (laughs) It was the Mitch Miller singers. They did something like 28 million albums of all kinds of songs over the years. They sure did. And, and, uh, you know, Steve Gadd, Ron Carter were a couple of other great alumni. And uh, so it was pretty awesome to have that kind of talent coming out of the out of the school. And of course, Chuck Mangione and many others. Oh, yes. um, You mentioned him earlier. I'm going to yeah. ask you a little bit later about Richard Elliott and your professional relationship. But before we get to that, just a little bit more about your background. So clearly, you didn't go to the Eastman School of Medicine because that was your other choice, to be a doctor or to be a musician. And clearly, I guess there were some math issues that got in the way. Yeah, I, I, I kind of had a short circuit when it came to, I was, I was doing great. I was a really good math student. And all of a sudden, there was a moment in the geometry class where I just remember my teacher, Mr. Gitch, 
looked at me for the answer and it was hard kind of to tell that he was looking directly at me because he was cross-eyed <laughs> and, he, and he, so he would you know if you didn't know the answer you pretended you acted like he was looking at somebody else <laughs> and you can so, get away with it too I, tr I tried but then he covered one of his eyes and he pointed at me and i didn't know the answer so i was done and uh from that moment on, it just didn't work out. And so mu music kind of always has been, you know, a passion and it's always been a, my first love. And the doctor thing kind of kind of fell by the wayside then. It just didn't wasn't going to work out. You know, when you had the, you obviously had the talent and the passion. Did you also have any mentors that guided you along the way that helped you in focusing on what you wanted to do and how you wanted to present it? Well, I had, you know, my, 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 my first trumpet teacher, uh, Richard Hinkle, was an Air Force guy, and he, he was my trumpet teacher. He was my high school band director, and he was kind of the guy who, who was very strict on, uh, with me as far as, you know, what he expected me to be able to do, and also he was a guy who taught me music theory and it ex exposed me to, like, the the, uh, the the analytical side of music and helped me to find that. So I would have to say he was really the guy at an early age who who saw what I was capable of. And then he he hit a point in high school to his credit where he said, "I can't really teach you anymore. I'm going. I want you to go down and study with someone who taught me, Seymour Rosenfeld from the Philadelphia Orchestra." So I went down and studied with Seymour Rosenfeld, and very cla he's a classical musician. So my training then, uh, my last couple of years of high school, was really about orchestral excerpts and learning how to play as a classical trumpet player. You know, and then once I, once I, I had a very interesting, because I went to college, and, you know, in college, there were so many people who influenced me throughout college. But I remember I, I was in a band called Oracle, and we played, this was, this one is, is probably one of the most inspirational things that happened to me while I was at college, we played a show and opened up for the great George Benson. And George wasn't, he was still a CTI artist then and wasn't doing, you know, Masquerade and Breezin and all of that. He wasn't that kind of a star. He was a jazz artist with Freddie Hubbard and playing those records. So, but he was my hero. And I, I went, we played our show and our music was extremely complicated. And we were very, we were like just trying to blow people away. So we're up there on stage opening up for George Benson. We finished our show and we thought, yeah, we just destroyed them. That was amazing. And we walked off the stage and George gathered us up and he said, fellas, are you having a good time uh, playing music? Are you enjoying yourselves out there? And I said, and we, we all kind of looked at each other like, is, and, he, and he said, because that's what music is about. If you don't show the joy that you're experiencing playing music and share that with your audience, you're missing the whole point of this. And he said, you, you just, uh, you know, and, and I thought about that. And being in an extremely competitive environment like Eastman, you take it really seriously. And when I heard him say that, it kind of opened up the door for me to be a whole different kind of musician where it's, it's all about the joy and it's all about spreading the joy and, you know, um, appreciating the opportunity to do what I do. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful to him for that. I had a chance to share that with him when we, we, had, we talked and, and spent some time together. He said something very profound because 
One thing I've noticed is, particularly for jazz performers, if you watch a lot of them on stage, they're almost projecting a too cool for the room attitude instead right. of enjoying the music. And what you just said, based on your advice from George Benson, makes a lot more sense. Enjoy it because you're going to communicate that joy to the audience. Exactly. And, and looking, you know, I mean, look, Clark Terry, Dizzy Gillespie, just to name a few, they were performers who really just, you know, Count Basie, all of those guys really had that attitude and they shared the joy and had humor in, in what they did. And uh, so th- for me, that's, that's kind of where I like to, to find my home as a performer is, is in that, that joyful attitude and that uh, uh, grateful to, to have the opportunity to do what I do. You know. Rick, can that be replicated in the studio? In other words, when you're recording an album, can you communicate joy in a recording session as opposed to a live performance? Absolutely, because, you know, it's, it's a different kind of energy. And I've had experiences in the studio where I've, I've tried to replicate what I've done in a live, for instance, if I have a live recording of a show and I'm playing something, I went through this with Rick's Cafe Live and stuff because I wanted to kind of repair something. First of all, the energy of a live show is so different than the energy in the studio. It's it's a they're two different things. But the it, it, the energy that an audience and being in front of people inspires is something above and beyond. Now, having said that, sitting in the studio and I've just written a, a really, you know, what I feel is like a really nice song, and now it's time to play trumpet on it, and I've I've done the basic track or something, and I get it. It's absolutely wonderful to to sit there and explore the opportunities of what what a melody should be like and and then to go through the process of discovering and writing something from from deep within you know it's it's a it's a great feeling it's a different kind of joy it's a different kind of joy you know and also too there is a little bit of an audience in the studio there's the producer and the engineer and a couple of other people so you have people watching you or reacting to you while you are performing. Well, Ira, let me clear something up, though. <laughs> yes. I am the engineer and the producer. <laughs> ah, then you have your own, you so, have yourself as the audience. I love it. I am, so I'm the <laughs> guy, you know, unless I have a co-writer. Now, if I have a co-writer in a track and, and the co-writer is there, then it's, then it's, then I do have an audience. Right. And then it's, it's a whole different thing. But a lot of times it's just me in the studio creating and wearing about 15 hats, including the, the coffee maker and uh, chief, <laughs> chief bottle washer. <laughs> that's, that's when it's time to call in some of your kids to help you out so they can be an audience and get you the coffee. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Sadly, they're, away, they're all away at school now. <laughs> yeah. But when they come back and they're, they're annoyed that you ask them, you can say, well, Ira suggested this because it's important you be supportive and an audience and also bring the coffee. I'm going to try that on them and see how that works. I'll report back to you, okay? Okay, yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Freddie Hubbard, and there's also another gentleman who you really like to listen to, which everybody does, is Miles Davis. Yeah, yeah. For me, Miles Davis was was always the Clint Eastwood of trumpet. I mean, and I, 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 by that I mean, he, he, he knew what he could do, and he knew his limitations, and he knew how to do it really well and to to be as expressive in a way that no one else was being expressive you know there are people like dizzy who could play all over the horn and again clark terry all over the horn high and low and every, you know 
Miles had a voice that was very, you know, uh, focused and, and it, it was within a certain uh, register of the horn. And what I loved about his playing that I could relate to, because I've never been a lead player. I, I can play high notes, but it's not a place that I live naturally. And Miles chose to, to play most of what he played in the, in the mid range and low range of the trumpet. So it's a very intimate voice for the most part. And I really related to that, mostly because I, I'm, I know my limitations. I'm not a Dizzy Gillespie type of a guy or a Maynard Ferguson type of guy. And so when I heard, I heard Miles doing his thing, I just, I, I loved it, and I was very inspired by it. Do you find that you're at that point in your career where people are looking to you to either be a mentor or as an influence on their own career? I've I've had some experiences like that, and I've had I've had some very touching experiences. One in particular in South Africa, uh, when I was in actually Nigeria. That's not South Africa. That's Nigeria. Yeah, that's a whole other world. <laughs> whole yes. other thing. Yeah, a very different place. And there was a young trumpet player who had made an ex- an exceptional effort to come and see a show I was doing there with Norman Brown, and he showed up in the hotel ballroom with his horn and started talking to me and playing some of my licks and and you know letting me know how big of a how, how big of a motivation it was for him to listen to my music and how inspired he was by that and it was so sweet i mean i sat down and we spent time together we exchanged numbers i i gave him a lesson and listened to him play and and we just had a great time hanging out i've had things like that happen throughout the world and it's it's really nice to know that I've had that kind of a, I think as, as a, as a, a performer, as somebody who, you know, who's made a few records and, and things like that, it, it's really re- rewarding to know that it's had a positive influence on some young people, you know, out there. And also the impact of your music on a person in another country, as opposed to a neighbor down the block saying, I want to learn from you. I have been influenced by you. This is somebody from around uh, on the other side of the world who was obviously influenced by you and had such a motivation to see you perform and got to meet you and, as you said, exchanged phone numbers, got a lesson from you. That has to mean more to you than just the neighbor down the block saying that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was, it was, it, it was um, really wonderful. And I was so, so happy to, to spend the time with him. And, uh, you know, there's been others. There's a very talented young trumpet player who was at the Eastman School of Music, Mike Catone, and he went on to be, uh, you know, he went to the uh, Thelonious Monk Institute in Los Angeles at UCLA, which is really prestigious. But when he was still at college, I came to Eastman to do a fundraiser, and Mike made it a point to, he wanted to be the one to pick me up at the airport. And we've become very close friends. And, you know, I, I had him on my, my internet show, Rick's Cafe Live. And he's he's one heck of a player and an incredibly talented young musician. And he, he you know, I was very flattered that, you know, even though he, he can play circles around me in certain respects, I was honored that uh, I had been a part of his musical foundation, you know. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. When did your professional relationship with Richard Elliott start? Well, the first time that we we toured together was in a package called Guitar Sax Guitars Saxes and More. I was and more. I was like, 
<laughs> so uh, I was I was there, and Richard and I went on the road, and and that was, but I had known him before that. I mean, he was in Tower of Power, and I was in Playing with War. Uh, I was in Rod Stewart's band, and he was in Huey Lewis and the News. He was playing with them as a member of Tower of Power Horn Section, and we kept running into each other, and we were we were getting to know each other way back then, and I was a fan of his well before I started my career because he started his career as a, as a, a solo artist before I did. So, uh, but we joined forces in, uh, in guitar saxes and more. And that was myself and, and Richard and Peter White and Craig Chiquiso. And we had a great time. And, um, you know, I had just met my wife and he was just starting to date his wife. And my wife ended up being the maid of honor in their wedding. And of course, Richard and I have made so many records together over the years, including the R&R record. We'll be playing music from the R&R record during our, our show there in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, I've produced his records and he's been a guest on many of my records. And uh, so everything is, you know, we, we've, we've had a, a friendship that's, that goes, uh, you know, 20, 26, 27 years, 27 years down in, into the past. Yeah. That's impressive. Now, you're always at a disadvantage because he has sax appeal. Yes, he really does. I'm not going to touch that. I'm letting you have that one. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Just remember, I'm and more. I'm and That's more, right, okay? and more. <laughs> and more. Yeah. So uh, what's your experience? Because you've been to Las Vegas several times performing. What's your take on Las Vegas as a, as a market, as a venue, a larger venue in the sense of the whole city compared to some of the other places you've been to? Well, I, you know, I love coming to Las Vegas. I, I, I kind of I'm a big fan of the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra and, you know, of course, Las Vegas and Sammy and Frank and Dino. That, that's the, it's synonymous. And it's still, I mean, the history of Las Vegas for me, I, I love coming to the city and it's always a great audience. I've played there so many, so many times, you know, and it's always been pleasant and, and a great time, except for the one time I was playing an outdoor festival and it was in the middle of the afternoon and the sun was right shining down on the stage. And I picked up my flugelhorn to play it. And the mouthpiece must have been like, you know, you, you it was like 115 degrees, the mouthpiece was so hot. I was like, Oh my God, I couldn't play the horn. <laughs> I had to put it back down. So, I, I see secondary burns coming into the picture all of a sudden. Yeah, I've, I've learned my lesson. Now. It's like always put a towel over the mouthpiece if you're going to put the horn down, you know? So, yeah. Or ice. Yeah. One of the two. Or, yeah. One or the other. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to the show. Uh, Las Vegas is an opportunity because of the casinos we get to play larger venues than we do sometimes because the casinos have those wonderful large venues and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to, to do that and come and play for a whole bunch of people at once. How do you structure your show for Las Vegas? Is it different than the other cities or is it the same? Or I know you're going to do some stuff, obviously, as we mentioned with Richard Elliott and the R&R, but how are you setting up the show? Is it first you, then him, and then both? Or how does no, that work? We, no, we, we, we generally play together on each other's music because we have so many collaborative efforts over the years. And saxophone has been a part of so many of my big songs that Richard plays on mine. And I've produced so many of Richard's songs that have horn section on them. So I will play on his music as well. So it, it's more of a more of a uh, togetherness show than an individual 
you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a collab, true collaborative show. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I could see how that would work. Uh, you guys are basically working at second nature with each other. You know how each of you operate, how each of you play, how each of you think. So that makes perfect yeah, we, sense. We definitely finish each other's musical sentences and, uh, it's, it's really a joy to work with him. Richard is one of those guys who, who just, he never holds back. He never, ever, ever holds back at all. It's always when, when I, it's almost like a, a sporting event when I'm on stage with him. So we, we definitely challenge each other and push each other to the next level, you know? Yeah, no, that's great. As I said, he has sax appeal, so there you go. Correct. <laughs> I couldn't let you go without asking you to tell us a little bit about the story which I thought was very sentimental, and I'm a sentimental kind of guy, but the steel stacks and you're performing on stage in front of where your dad used to work. Could you just share a little bit of that for our listeners? Well, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, my dad worked at the Bethlehem Steel Company in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania when I was you know, a young man, and he retired from there after I went to, to college. But you know, he he worked in the factory, and uh, then at nighttime he would deliver insurance policies, and I would ride along with him sometimes. But you know, I put I took up the trumpet, and and of course, you know, we had a family of six. We lived in Cedar City, Allentown, and my dad's working at the Bethlehem Steel, and so you know, I I have a lot of respect for him, you know, and what he was able to do, raising six kids. And when it came time for me to go to school, the Eastman School of Music was $18,000 a year back then. And I got a partial scholarship, but I didn't get a full scholarship. And he could have very easily said, you know what, Rick, I don't have the money to send you to the school, but he knew that's where I wanted to go. And so, you know, I got to play the the Bethlehem Steel, turned that old factory, which shut down shortly after I went to uh, college, uh, they shut it down and uh, they turned it into a museum and it's it's lit and the, it's the backdrop for what they call the steel stacks uh, and it's a venue, it's a club. And so the, as you're watching the show in the background, is the Bethlehem Steel is lit up with all of these colored lights and for an old broken down old factory, it actually looks quite beautiful. And so for me, it's, 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 it's uh, whenever I play there, it's pretty emotional because if it wasn't for that old shutdown factory i probably wouldn't have been able to my dad wouldn't have been able to buy me my horn and wouldn't have been able to send me to the school i went to and i wouldn't have had the career that i have so you know yeah it's a very very emotional and sentimental thing to go back and play there and i think it's a tribute to both the plant and your dad or your dad and the plant it's both it's not just one or the other correct yeah yeah, yeah. and you know it's 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 a time it's it's kind of a it's it's a it's a past it's a it's a um, piece of America's past. I mean that that steel company produced a lot of the steel that was used to uh, to win World War II, and uh, was a thriving you know industry right up until you know the uh, when it when it shut down. And uh, so yeah, and my dad you know he was an amazing human being. Never said much, but he was a great guy. Great well, guy. I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Rick Braun. He'll be performing along with Richard Elliott in the Chrome Showroom at the Santa Fe Station Hotel this Saturday, November 13th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to santafestation.com. And for everything about Rick Braun, including his new album, Crossroads, go to rickbraun.com. And you can follow him on Facebook at Rick Braun and on Twitter at Rick Braun 9 soon to be also 
8 and 7, based on what <laughs> our previous discussion. Rick, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Iris. I wanted to let you know and let the fans know that, you know, of course, I tour with Richard Elliott, and I do my own gigs as well, that one of the things that I'm very proud of are my signature events, Rick Braun signature events. I host a New Year's Eve show. It's a benefit for autism. Partial proceeds go for autism. And I also host river cruises on AMA waterways. So this year, we're uh, well, next year, sorry, 2022, we're going to be going down the Rhone River. And my guests will be Peter White and Kirk Whalum. And then the following year, we'll be going down the Mosul River. And my guests that year, 2023, will be Jeffrey Osborne, Dave Cause, and Vincent Ngala. So, you know, the place you check out and come and, visit and find out information about any of those events is, again, my website, rickbron.com. Thank you for being patient with me. The fans don't know it, but it took some doing to organize this, this get-together. So thank you for being patient with Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,